All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of that same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. Another term for that is discernment. Um, To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. That's languages that can be of men or of heaven. And still another, the interpretation of tongues or languages. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. I want to talk to you tonight. I've been, I've been doing a series on Wednesday nights about how fill-in-the-blank works in everyday life. So tonight I want to talk about how the Holy Spirit operates in everyday life. Most people are under the impression somehow in the Pentecostal realm that the Holy Spirit's place and designation of work is basically within the four walls of a church. But nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, where does the Holy Spirit, when, when He fills us, we're filled with the Holy Spirit... Where then does the Holy Spirit dwell? Where? In our spirit. So our bodies are the temples of what? The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit actually dwells in us, right? Well, if the Holy Spirit dwells in us, why is the only place that he is ever manifested inside the church house? The New Testament saints didn't operate that way. The New Testament saints, Jesus, the disciples, the people in the New Testament, they, they were operating in the powerful operate, operative group, fruits and, and, and the gifts of the Spirit, the manifestation of the Spirit. Everywhere they went, miracles happened. God showed out. Stuff took place. And it was because the Holy Spirit within them was not in their minds confined to a, to a building or to a church or to an event. A lot of Pentecostals, the only kind of Holy Spirit they ever see or hear is two dimensions. A message in tongues and an interpretation at church. Outside that, the Holy Spirit's just pretty much a non-entity in their lives. God never intended it to be that way. So tonight, I want to talk about how the Holy Spirit operates in everyday life. And I don't have time. This could be a three or four part series. I'm not going to be able to dig super deep and drill down into each one of these. Uh, but we will have a little time for some Q&A and some um, commentary at the, end of the, at the end of the lesson tonight. So number one, Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. The first thing the Holy Spirit does in our lives, the first way he operates in everyday life is he empowers us. The Holy Spirit empowers us. Now, now, now what does that actually mean? He, he empowers us. I'll give you an example of what it means. I've never seen a person change more dramatically than a, a girl named Christy that was in our youth group when Donna and uh, Pastor Donna and I were youth pastors in Columbus, Georgia, years and years and years ago. This little girl was so quiet and reserved and I don't know about shy, but in a, in a way shy. And she was just introverted and 
non-engaging with people she didn't know. Once you got to know her, she was, a, she was kind of a fun person, but still real quiet, you know. And one night we had a special series of teachings over the weeks on the Holy Spirit. One night we had a special service dedicated to people being filled with the Holy Spirit. And she came to the altar. We laid hands on her and prayed with her along with 50 or 60 other young people. And she was filled with the Holy Spirit. I am telling you, she completely changed. She was no longer this quiet, mousy, introverted, shy little girl. She, I mean, overnight, she was completely different. Uh, the Holy Spirit makes us bold. The Bible says, but you shall receive power, what? To be my witnesses. That's the purpose. So the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to give us power to be witnesses. How can, how can we be witnesses if we're introverted and shy and don't want to engage with people, don't want to meet anybody new? It's hard to carry out the Great Commission when you don't want to engage with people. Now, I want to give you fair warning as an honest pastor. When you engage with human beings, I want you to hear this, in the church or not, people are going to do stupid things. How many of you know that? You're going to meet some Christian people, and you're going to look at them and go, what did you just say? What did you just do? Did I, did I hear that? You know, Listen, you couldn't shock me. I mean, a Playboy bunny could walk down there, prance down here, and sit on it. It wouldn't surprise me a bit. It just wouldn't. I'm shockproof, all right? Now, God forbid, I hope we got a robe somewhere if she does. <laughs> but the truth is, you cannot come to church and expect to find perfect people. You're not going to. I had a district superintendent of the Assemblies of God preach in my church in New Mexico one time, and he said this across the pulpit. He said, if you find a perfect church, don't go there. You'll ruin it. <laughs> And I thought, wow, okay, that's good. But we, we have to understand people in the context. Here, listen, I want you to get this. Just hit the pause on the Holy Spirit thing for a minute and listen to me. This helped, has helped me with people more than anything God ever showed me. I want you to hear this because it's going to help you too, I promise. You ready? People do what they do because that's where they are. And that sounds very sophomoric. But when you begin to understand that the person who runs all the way to the head of the line and cuts everybody off in the exit lane in Atlanta, he does that because he is selfish, he has no honor, he's immature, and that's just where he is in his, in his life. And if he's even a Christian at all, that's just who he is. That's, that's all you can expect from him because that's the level of maturity he's developed. You, you go out into the supermarket, and there's this woman, and she's arguing with the lady across the, the checkout thing over her coupons. You know, that's just where she is. We, we come to church, and we find people who are, who are uh, I don't even know how to say it. I'm going to show you a video Sunday. By the way, let me put in a shameless plug for the sermon Sunday, the message Sunday. It's going to be powerful. Here's the shameless plug. Come to church Sunday and bring somebody with you, because I'm preaching a message called. And I, look, if you wonder, where do I get my messages? I don't get messages from anywhere but the Bible and a, and a clean sheet of paper. I don't get messages from other preachers. I don't have a message file. I don't have sermon sites. I don't collect stuff and go through series of things that I get offline. I start with a Bible and, and an empty, I used, used to say empty sheet of paper. Now it's an empty page on my iPad, but it's the same thing. And, and I get all, every sermon I preached to you came originally and first from me. It didn't, I didn't get it from somebody else. I don't borrow stuff. So, it's amazing. There's a video I'm going to show you Sunday. The message is going to be entitled Common Sense Christianity or 
how to be a good church member. <laughs> I'm going to preach that. I've never heard anybody preach a message called Common Sense Christianity slash how to be a good church member. And it's going to go on both sides of the pulpit. I'm going to show you some videos of some, of some things that preachers do that, that I don't think is cool. And I'm going to show you a video of a guy that he's supposed to be excited about giving, but it crosses the line. And this guy is doing more to draw attention to himself than anything else. And uh, I think I've shown this video one time about 15 years ago, but I'm going to show it again. It's one minute. You, you're just not going to believe this little dude. But you come to church, and there's this person, and they're so involved in whatever they're doing around the altar or the worship uh, that it, it, it disturbs more and draws more attention to themselves than it does anything else. They do that because that's where they are in their maturity and in their walk with God. So we've got we've to understand that people do what they do because that's where they are. That's where they are in their maturity. That's where they are perhaps in a contextual season of their lives. Now let me just tell you, I'm, I used to be the meanest human being you'd ever wanted to meet in your life. And you'd have never known it. I'm telling you, I, I, was, I just hated everybody the same. I, did, I hated people. I just hated everybody. I'm confessing I did. And it was because of stuff I went through. And you'd never know I hated you. But if you weren't my daddy or mom or sister, I hated you. <laughs> I just didn't want you. You'd never know it. I was nice. And I was, but deep inside, it was like, you know. But that was my problem. And God healed me of all that and brought me out of that. And I grew to love God, love people, and get healed up and all that. And then in, and, and for years and years and years, I've been gregarious and outgoing and engaging and spent my life in the ministry trying to help people because I love people. Because you can't love God if you don't love what God loved, and that's people. The Bible says in 1 John, how can a man say he loves God whom he has not seen when he hates his brother whom he has seen? All these folks talk about how much ministry they want to do and how much they love God. If you don't really care about people, you better hit the pause button and go in the woods somewhere and pray yourself through because something ain't right in here. I'm just telling you. And I'm going to be honest with you. There are some folks out there that are not easy to love. But you've got to love them anyway. That's the thing. We don't have the luxury as Christians to just live however we want to. But people do what they do because that's where they are. And I'm the most loving and caring person. I go, go the extra mile to help somebody. But my father died in 2012. And my father was, he and I were just like that. And he was my best friend all my life. And when he died, it just, it just knocked me out of orbit. And for about, for about three or four months after my daddy died, you know, I, I still came up here. I had to come back and, and work on the sanctuary and hang ceiling tiles and paint and all the other stuff we were doing to get this place ready to occupy because it was pretty much the same, the same time that we were moving in here. But... For the next four or five months, it just wasn't a good time for me emotionally. I didn't do anything bad. I wouldn't mean to anybody. But it was hard for me to care like I used to because I was devastated. And I'm just bearing my soul and being honest with you. I'm human. How many of y'all are human? Yeah. That, just reach down and rip my heart out and sit it in the bed of coals. That's what had been done. So I went through my responsibilities and I discharged the duties of my offices but boy I didn't do it with a whole bunch of enthusiasm because my heart just wasn't in anything I just wanted to go sit in the woods and cry so if you had met me at that time of my life it probably wouldn't have been an honest impression 
of who, of who I was or what I was motivated about. And I'm going to tell you, that lasted a long time. It took a long time for me to get over that and to really get healed up because my, my dad and I were just so close. And sometimes when you encounter somebody, especially somebody who's a Christian, and you see them do something that seems out of character for a Christian, let me just encourage all of us to, to bear with one another. What, what, is, what does the Bible say? Bear with one another and forgive each other just as God in Christ forgave you. Sometimes we don't understand the context of where their attitude is coming from, and a little grace coming from us helps put oil in the machinery of, of life and helps things smooth, smooth over a little bit. And uh, I, just, I just got out of a conversation not long ago about a situation that doesn't even involve our church at all. That's what's got me thinking about this, so... Let's try to extend grace to one another and, and let's try to love each other even when we're a little less than optimally lovable. Have any of you ever had a bad hair day? Raise your hand. Well, Sharina must have had one. She <laughs> was a yes, sir. Why come your hair one day will behave itself and then the next day it's like it just won't do it, you know? It's, it's kind of that way with life and ourselves. I think sometimes we have bad soul days. Our soul was fine two days ago. Why would I wake up in such a foul mood? I dreamed the other night that Pastor Donna cheated on me. I did. I dreamed she cheated on me. I woke up and I was like. And I decided, okay, this day is either going to hoover real bad or I'm going to take hold of this thing right now and I'm going to fix it, you know. So I thought, Roland, don't be an idiot. That's just a dream. You know she loves you. So, <clears throat> so I, I rolled over the bed and I. And I don't, don't normally wake her up in the morning. You know, you're taking your life in your hands. Anyway, I, I hugged her and I nuzzled her neck and I kissed on her. And, and she was like, oh, you know, she was, it meant a lot to her. And later on that day, I, I told her why I had done it just to make sure she knew that I wasn't mad at her and I loved her. You know, people do that. I've had counseling sessions over people having dreams about their spouse. I kid you not. I want to just take a hammer and go, you took an hour of my time to talk to me about a dream? Wham! I'll pray for that big toe. No, not really. Not really. But the Holy Spirit empowers us, and He empowers us to be witnesses. Now listen, don't put your personality on a pedestal. I want to say that again. None of us should put our personalities on a pedestal and say, well, that's just who I am. It's inviolable. That's me. We are never just who we are. We are always who we choose to be. And God is never going to leave your personality alone. If you're a piece of marble, God's always going to have a hammer and a chisel and a piece of sandpaper. Always. He is always working on us. He's always growing us. He's always improving us. I spent years in the martial arts and playing football and all these high-velocity context of weightlifting, all this crazy stuff. And if you want to better yourself, you always have to push yourself. You can never get comfortable. Now, I'm going to tell you a story. This is the truth. I was pastoring a mission church that later became a solvent church under our ministry in New Mexico. And it was about four miles from an, an Indian Pueblo out in the middle of nowhere. And a man who did not come to my church called me one day, and he said, Pastor, I need you to come to my church and talk to my, come to my house and talk to my wife. I said, what's going on? He said, you just have to come see this. And I thought, oh boy, <laughs> you know. I said, you going to be there? Yes, I'm here now. So I went over there. 
And he said, <clears throat> his wife was laying on the couch. He said, I don't know what's wrong with my wife, Pastor. She has decided she is not going to do anything. I, I asked her, what do you mean? She says, I'm going to lay on this couch. I'm not doing anything. I'm not cooking. I'm not cleaning. I'm not working. I'm laying down. I'm tired. I'm done. I'm laying down. And nothing I could say would change her mind. She lay down on that couch. Two years later, she died on that couch. God didn't design us to do nothing. God didn't design us to plateau. God didn't design us for a recliner. God designed us for a pair of MMA gloves or a shovel or an axe or some kind of activity, a pair of skis, something. Man, be active. And I'm not talking about physical. I'm talking about in your character. God designed us to always grow and move forward and stretch ourselves and push ourselves to become, listen, better than we were yesterday in our hearts and in our minds. Don't ever get comfortable with who you are and decide that's just me and I'm not changing. That's the death zone. God wants you to grow. The Holy Spirit comes to empower us. Empowerment often means transformation. To be my witnesses. So that's the first thing he does. He empowers us. The second thing he does is he always testifies to Christ. The Bible says the Holy Spirit always testifies to Christ. And he does. Now, the significance of that as it relates to us in everyday life is this. If we're really Christians, and if we really do, man, I feel the presence of God in this place. If we're Christians and we really do want to impact the world around us, and when I say that, I mean that might be you and a buddy in a fishing boat. That's the world around you. Impact that person. If, if it's you in, in, a, in, a, in an arena of 75,000 people and you got the chance to speak, impact that world. Well, wherever we are, if the Holy Spirit's in us, and the Bible says the Holy Spirit always testifies to Christ. In other words, he's always reflecting the, the attention, and we say the glory, but really the emphasis, the attention, the focus. The Holy Spirit's always reflecting that on Jesus. Now, if the Holy Spirit's in us, and he's always reflecting everything toward Jesus, should not we then be reflecting everything toward Jesus? That doesn't mean you have to go to Longhorn after church tonight, hop up on the table, and start speaking in tongues. What it does matter, what it does mean, though, is when somebody, the Bible says, always be prepared to give an answer to someone who asks you about your faith. If you're going to, if, if Nate goes out with a bunch of guys, and all of them decide they're going to have a beer, and Nate decides, you know, I'm not doing that. It's just my own personal conviction. I'm not saying a beer will send you to hell, but I'm saying for the sake of testimony, a lot of Christians decide I'm not going to do that. And <clears throat> I think that's a wise move. But Nate decides, I'm not going to drink with these guys. And he sits there and he orders a bottle of water. And one of the guys says, come on, man, have a beer. Nate's got options, don't you? Man, that's some good water. Let me do that again. Man, that's cold and wet. It just, my throat's parched and dry. That just feels so, one more time, I'm sorry. Are you thirsty yet? I saw three or four people drinking water with me. Always live your life in such a way as to make everybody want what you've got. Anyway, Nate can decide, <clears throat> no, man, I, I just don't like, I, I, I'm just, I'm driving. He can cop out with the designated driver, cop out. Or he can say, man, you know why I don't drink beer? You know why I'm not drinking? You know why I don't do that? And just explain to the people, 
I'm trying to live a Christian life. And I know maybe one beer is not going to send anybody to hell, but I'm not drinking because I don't want to make anybody look at me who claims to be a Christian drinking a beer and stumble and offend them and make them fall away from God. Every guy in the group, your respect meter is going to go in their eyes right then because they understand he is, he is living for something bigger than his self-interest in this moment. You want to win people's respect? Invest yourself in something bigger than yourself. That's how you win people's respect. If you just go through life demanding your rights, do you have the right to drink a beer with the guys? Yeah, you do. If you determine to do it, you got a right. You have a right to smoke that cigar? Yeah. You got a right to go pick up that prostitute in America? That's a, it's in, in, Las Vegas, in Nevada, I guess it's uh, Las Vegas. I guess you can. You got a right. You got a right to have an abortion in some places? I guess you do. But just because we have a right to do it doesn't mean it's the best thing to do. That's why 1 Corinthians says in another chapter, not everything that is beneficial is wise. Or not everything that's permissible is wise. Everything is permissible, but not everything is wise. Everything is permissible, but not everything's beneficial. We, we don't always choose things based on the rigid legality or illegality and, and cut the line right there. There's also the spirit of living this life for Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit always testifies to Christ. So as we live our lives out in the world, we need to be reflecting Jesus Christ. We need to be testifying. That doesn't mean every word that comes out of your mouth has to be a scripture verse. That annoys me, and I'm a preacher. Nobody likes to be around the Bible answer man. We showed a video some years ago that people being oversaved, and somebody said, I lost my car keys. And he's going, man, you need the keys to the kingdom. You know, it's like everything's. You ever had one of those days when everything reminded you of a song? I had a day the other day, and everything that happened reminded me of a song. I'd just pop out some old 80s song, you know. And Donna said something about believing. I'm like, don't stop believing. Journey, you know. It's like everything was a song. That's funny when it's everything is a song, but when you're around a bunch of non-believers, they don't know what the Bible says, and you're scripture-quoting woman, you know, or man, that just annoys people. Testifying to Christ sometimes has to do with wisdom and prudence and good judgment and the subtle nuance of a word aptly spoken. But our attitude, our attitude should reflect Jesus. Our motives should reflect Jesus. The words we choose to use should reflect Jesus. No unbeliever gives a flying rip how you feel when you run the 100-yard dash in 9-8. What they do care about is when you stub your toe at the end of a long work day and you can see your sock turning red because you popped that thing. Now they want to listen to what you're going to say. Or when you come down on your thumb with a hammer, now they want to listen to what you're going to say. Or when somebody that doesn't deserve the promotion gets it ahead of you, now they're listening. You see, it's when, it's when the times are tough that people tend to focus on those of us who claim we have Christ. So when times are tough, we need to exemplify Christ even then more than others. And I'm not telling you that's easy. But being, being at the top of your game and being an effective witness and overcoming the odds and swimming against the, the current, none of that stuff is easy. Changing a world is not easy. Leading somebody to Jesus is not easy. But that's why you and I have been chosen to do it because God 
God knew we had it in us to accept the challenge and to be world changers. Change your world one person at a time. He always testifies to Christ. The third thing the Holy Spirit does is he reminds us of the word. The Bible says in in the book of John uh, and in the book of Acts also, it references that the Holy Spirit, when when Jesus sent the disciples out, he he told them, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit at that time will give you what to say. He will remind you of everything I've told you in John. So the Bible Bible is clear that the Holy Spirit is going to remind us of the Word. Now, listen, this is Common Sense Class 101. In order for the Holy Spirit to remind us of the Word, the Word has to first be in us to have been reminded of it. You can't... Uh, if Mark has never fly fished a day in his life, I can't walk up to him and say, hey, remember how to, how to do the back cast? And he's going to go, I've never done that before. We've got to have the word in us in order for us to be reminded of it. So the power of this, though, is when we need not necessarily a verse. It's not that, it's not that we need a verse. Oh, just give me a verse to stand on. I, I get so sick of people saying that. What we need from the Bible aren't these little blue packets of, of precious promises. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But forget having a verse to stand on and try to find a principle to stand on that the Bible teaches. Sometimes a principle in the Bible requires more than one verse to delineate. So it's the principles that we, that we operate on. You know, the Bible doesn't say necessarily in these words... When you come to church, don't bring flags and banners and tambourine shoes and dance a jig on the stage to draw attention to yourself. It doesn't say that in the book of Hezekiah chapter 3. It doesn't say that. But the principle is there. The principle is what we live by. You, you, don't, you don't just study the Word of God to learn that David killed Goliath. Oh, little people can beat up big people. There's a whole lot more to David versus Goliath than the fact that the, that the little guy can beat the big guy. That's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much underneath it about faithfulness, about anointing, about, about discipline, about occupying. There's so much about that story. More So if you, if you just want the story and the history, I know some people that know the whole history of national Israel in all of the sequential order of how it goes through the Old Testament. Yay! Bully for you. What I'm interested in is the principles that bring us life. I could care less about what Israel was doing in the year 1201. I want to know what the principles are that brought them to victory or took them down to defeat. We learn and we grow through the principles of the Bible. It's, it's, digger, it's deeper digging. It's mining down for the, for the truth that's underneath the surface. So the Holy Spirit reminds us of the Word, and the Bible says He illuminates the Word of God to us. That means He, he broadens our understanding of it. H- how many of you can say, I've read this same section of Scripture over and over and over, but not long ago I read it, and for the first time I saw something in it that I'd never seen. Raise your hand. I'd never seen before. That's the Holy Spirit illuminating that Scripture and bringing something out of it that you never saw before. Now, on the other side of that, there's a balance. There are two words you need to know. These are theological words, and one of them is exegesis, and the other one is eisegesis. They are opposite polarities. Exegesis is what is the original writer saying to the original reader, 
in the context of that time frame, and how can I apply that to my life? That's what exegesis means. Eisegesis is something you never want to do, and that is to insert from your own thinking into the Scriptures more than it actually says. That's, that's a foul. No, no, we never, we never put into the Scripture more than it says. That's eisegesis. We want to be exegeters. We want to be involved in exegesis. So it's important to allow the Holy Spirit to remind us of the Word and to allow Him to illuminate it, but not to the point of it being untrue. The Bible only says so much. Now, I could name him, but I'm not. A very famous, world-famous preacher on television, on TBN. He's on TBN even now. Not this minute necessarily, but, you know, contemporary. He has said many times in the pulpit something that the Bible simply does not corroborate. And uh, he has said that the two witnesses in the book of Revelation have to be Enoch and Elijah because neither one of them ever died. And the Bible says it's appointed in the man wants to die, and after that, the judgment. The Bible does not say any such thing. The Bible does say it is appointed in the man wants to die, and after that, the judgment. But it does not say that Enoch and Elijah must be the two witnesses. This is an extrapolation that he has made out of his inference of Scripture, and it is not necessarily true. So what he should say is, and I can say this because I'm not calling his name, what he should do, and I don't often tell preachers what they should do, but this guy should do this. He should say, in my opinion, when I do the end time series, and I'm, a, I'm an a exhaustive student of end time prophecy. I do an end time series every few, few years. It takes a couple of months to plow through it. I start with a rapture and go in the sequence of events of everything we believe that's going to happen. I always bring uh, current events into it, and I haven't done one in a long time and I don't know, I've done, I've done them every so often. I may do one here again in the future, I'm not sure. But there, there are three levels of how we deal with prophecy. Number one is what does the Bible say and, and what's commonly thought about that. Secondly is this is what the Bible says and here's my opinion on it. And thirdly, this is what the Bible says, factually, hard case, inarguable. There will be a rapture of the church. Jesus will come back in the clouds. We will all go to meet him in the air. That's inarguable. It's absolutely going to happen. Now, is that going to happen before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or at the end of the tribulation? There's a lot of different philosophies about that. The Assemblies of God official position on that is that the rapture happens before the great tribulation, the seven-year tribulation. But I know some Assemblies of God people in leadership who believe that they're, they're leaning more toward a mid-trib rapture. The, to me, I don't really care. I just want to be ready. I just want to be ready. But I will tell you this, and you need to hear it. Even if the rapture occurs before the tribulation, that doesn't mean there's never going to be any difficult days up to that point. A lot of Christians in America, the reason they don't worry about survival skills or learning how to do bushcraft or anything like that. Oh, we're going to go in the rapture. There's no guarantee things won't get really, really bad before that happens. So he, re he empowers us. How does the Holy Spirit operate in everyday life? He empowers us. He testifies to Christ. He reminds us of the word and he illuminates it. Number four, he leads and guides us. He leads and guides us. 
The Bible says the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. If we really believe that, then that is a daily walk referenced by the Holy Spirit. It is a daily walk of intimacy where the Holy Spirit is dynamically operative in guiding us, not physically our steps, but the decisions that we make, the choices, the paths we take in life. Do we buy this house or do we buy that house? God cares about that. God cares which house you buy. Am I going to date this guy? He sure is good looking. Am I going to date this guy or not? Now, that's not me. That's an imaginary girl talking. Just thought I'd clarify that. (laughs) Am I going to date this girl? Boy, she's beautiful. Uh, Am I going to ask her out? Or that girl at church, she's, she's got a real sweet spirit. She just ain't quite as pretty as that one over there. Uh, I'm going to let you in on a little secret on this side of the pulpit, all right? Most of the marriage counseling I've ever done in my life, and I've done thousands, thousands and thousands, is because a Christian married a non-Christian. Oil and water don't mix. Now here's, prepare yourself for the thermonuclear bomb of truth. You ready? If you never date a non-Christian, you'll never marry a non-Christian. You telling me who to date? No, I'm telling you who not to date. (laughs) And I'll tell you something else. If somebody will cheat on you, or somebody will cheat with you, they will also cheat on you. That's just the truth. If they will cheat with you, they will cheat on you. It's just a matter of time. So he leads and guides us. What does that mean in everyday life? It means, like for me, several times, I like to hunt and fish. So several times, I've been out in the woods getting ready to go deer hunting, and I believe it's the Holy Spirit prompt me to go to a completely different part of the woods and set up a completely, because I always hunt with a portable climbing stand. I'm not one of these guys that I like to be free to go where I want in the woods. I don't like to get in shooting houses and all that. Some people do, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's, it has this advantage, and it's easy hunting. I just like to carry 50 pounds on my back. Anyway, um, I like the portability to go where I want. And, and I, I, was, I was looking for a stand site in Kentucky a few years back, and I felt like, I just felt like this one place I could see on the topographical map was a saddle. And I thought, man, that's got to be a good place for a, for a buck to cross this ridge. It's the only saddle on this whole ridge. It's got to be a cross in here. It's got to be a deer trail. So I found a big black walnut tree, and I marked it on my GPS, and I put a reflector on it so I could see it in the dark. And uh, a couple of years ago, I went there and climbed up a tree, and this 160-class 10-point walked un- in my footsteps and stood there for a full minute. I could have killed him 87 times. And I didn't because I had already killed a buck, and I couldn't shoot another one, so I had to let him go. And he, yes, he was bigger than the buck I killed. But anyway, little things like that. You're fishing, and the Lord says, change to this color fly. I remember one time we were in, I was fishing with a buddy up here in Helen, Georgia, in the Chattahoochee River. And we stopped at the fly shop up there, and they said, black, black, fish, black. They're biting everything black. So we put on these little tiny black flies, and we just beat the water to a froth, and not a strike. And I felt like the Lord prompted me, put on a green fly and shorten up your strike indicator to about that long. 
And I did, and in about eight casts, I had eight trout. And of course, my buddy was trudging to, to cross the stream coming to me. What are you doing? What are you fishing with? So I showed him, and we caught like 60 trout in the next three hours. It was great. God cares about the little things of our lives if we invite him into them. If we believe God doesn't care about my fishing, I'm just going to do what I want. But, but if he numbers your hairs, and that changes every day, it has to. Those hairs don't clog up your sink for nothing. They've got to come from somewhere. This changes. This count changes every day. If God cares about sparrows when they fall, he cares about your hunting and fishing. He cares about, ladies, he cares that you get that dress or that new top or whatever it is, those shoes, those purses. He cares that you get them on sale, baby. That's what I'm talking about. He cares. I heard some amens on that. Woo, that's good preaching right there. He cares. God cares about the things that we will let him care about. We invite him into the details of our lives. He cares about that. The Holy Spirit will lead us and guide us in wisdom. I've got a, I've got a physical issue. Lord, help me, help me not just, I'm asking you to heal it, but help me know how to, how to live my life, my lifestyle in such a way as to give my body a chance to recover and heal itself. God, God leads us by spirit. Is it time to talk to this person? Why is this person sitting on the, on the, on the steps over there by themselves? At this building, why, why are they sitting there? They look dejected. Are they waiting on somebody to come and sell them drugs? Or do they need Jesus? Are they thinking about suicide? Do I need to go talk to them? The, the Holy Spirit's instrumental in that. Is it the right time? He leads us and guides us in every dynamic of our lives. He, and he'll even give you what to say and how to say it. Jesus even said these words in John. My father has given me what to say and how to say it. Now, that's powerful. The Holy Spirit's involved in that. Next, and this is a big one, he bears the fruit in our lives. Now, Galatians 5.22 is a list of the nine fruit of the Spirit. Now, I really don't care, and I don't think it's worth the argument, whether you say nine fruits or nine fruit. I don't really care if it's one big fruit cut up into nine different pieces or if it's nine different fruits individually. All I care about is that we understand that these are character traits. And the next preacher that wants to argue me on that, I'm just going to lay hands on him and... I'm just going to say, I don't care. I just want to see them, whether it's one or nine, I just want to see them all in your attitude. <laughs> Is that okay? Um, <laughs> love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the fruit of the Spirit, nine. We should try our best to have all those character traits. It's so churchy and preacherified to call them fruit, and we need to bear the fruit. And that's true. We need to bear that fruit. But to the person in the, in the street out there, they have no idea what bearing fruit means. They think you're talking about a tree in the backyard. We're talking about our character traits, our attributes, our glorified, vaunted personality that God's always tweaking on. If our personality is more important to us than the identity of Christ operative in us, then our personality has usurped the throne of grace in our hearts. And we need to put Jesus back on the throne and let him mold and shape our personality to the way he wants it. He bears the fruit. Love. Do you love everybody? And be honest, this is, this is brutal. Knowing what we're supposed to do ain't the same thing as doing it. We know we're supposed to love people. That's the right answer, but that's 
Knowing the right answer on the test check, that doesn't mean we're doing it. I know exactly, I used to be a bodybuilding instructor. I know exactly what to do in the weight room to get a specific desired outcome. But am I doing it right now? The answer is no, but I'm working on it. I know the answer is yes, I'm supposed to, but am I doing it? No. So I know what to do. I just ain't doing it. I think there's a lot of Christians in that same boat spiritually. We know what to do. We just don't do it. I don't think, I'm going to be honest with you. It's my opinion. I'm not judging anybody. It's just my opinion. I think a lot of Christians talk a good game when it comes to love. But boy, I think, I think that's good shop talk until somebody steps on our toes. And somebody brings their hair and skin and nails and feathers up into our kitchen. And then it gets a little tough. I had somebody tell me one time a, a deacon in the church I was pastoring was talking about a situation and, uh, going on in his life. And I said, man, you've you got to forgive. I said, you, I, I looked at him, I love I said, I love you, but you're going to go to hell over this, man. And he said, it's not so easy when it's, when it's, when it's you. I said, how many times you heard me say that from the pulpit, bro? I know. I said, you've you got to forgive. You got to. Forgiveness is not optional. Restoration to fellowship is optional, but forgiveness is not. And I think a lot of times we, we, we do the little, instead of a, let me use baptism, instead of forgiveness, immersion, we sprinkle forgiveness. <laughs> we need to do baptism, forgiveness. A little sprinkle, I'll tell you what. I'll stop there, but I started to say some other things. Love, joy. If you're not joyful, start doing some inventory to find out why. It is important to know that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Satan loves to steal our joy. He doesn't care what it takes to accomplish that. He just wants it gone. If you're not joyful, find out why and deal with it. Don't live your life miserable. You get one life. You don't get a mulligan. You don't get a do-over. And a lot of times the road we're on is the one we tend to stay on. If you're not joyful, stop the presses and back off the train and figure out where that train track's been and where it's headed to and what kind of change you need to make in your life to get your joy back. With joy, we draw water from the wells of salvation. The Bible says it. If you're not joyful, something big is wrong in your walk with God. Love, joy, peace. What's trying to steal your peace? I don't have time to get into all these like I'm doing. I've got to move through this. But we need to live our lives in peace. Peace doesn't come because our circumstances all stack up beautifully. If you wait for peace to come from external stimuli, you'll never have it. Peace always originates in you. And enables you to walk through the difficult circumstances. Love, joy, peace, patience. Do not pray for patience. Decide to have it. Don't ask God, Lord, teach me patience. That's one of the dumbest prayers I've ever heard in my life. Instead, come to God and say, Father, I choose to be patient. Don't test me. Don't grind me in the mortar and pestle of affliction. I'm just going to be patient. And don't say, God, give me patience and give it to me now. You know, don't. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness. You know what that means in the Greek? Being good. Just being good. I tell you what else it means. It means liking good things. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 says that love rejoices in the good think about that i get concerned when i hear about you know christian young people that that like this stuff that's just flirting on the edge of pornography and crass coarse humor and and the kind of stuff that's borderline offensive and off color that's the stuff's not good 
We shouldn't rejoice in stuff that's not good. We shouldn't rejoice in evil. We shouldn't rejoice in, I'll go further, we shouldn't really rejoice in things that are marginally close. If if I was going to hire somebody to drive my family around the most dangerous roads in the world, I wouldn't hire the crazy guy from Pakistan. You know how they drive in Pakistan? They just floor it, and they drive straight through the intersection. They don't stop. They don't look. They say, ah, inshallah, if it is the will of Allah, we will live. If it is the will of Allah, we will die. You ain't driving my family nowhere. <laughs> the Holy Spirit got out of that car. <laughs> you, ain't, you ain't got, God even got out of that car. <laughs> love, joy, peace, patience, goodness. Rejoice with the good. Try to be a good person. Try to think good thoughts. Philippians 4 says, Brothers, if there be anything good, anything excellent, praiseworthy, noble, of good report, of good report, these are the things you should think about. If you will get Philippians 4, 8 in your head, I'm telling you, you will, you will, you will dominate in the arena of peace, goodness, kindness. Another word in the Greek that means being kind. For a couple of years there, everybody was about random acts of kindness, random acts of kindness, random acts of kindness. I'm all on board with that. I'm down with it. I get it. But if we do acts of kindness for people, and I'm just going to tell you straight, but our heart's not in it, it's not going to do us a whole lot of good. Kindness, real kindness, grows out of a seedbed of love and compassion and concern. Kindness is often shown in the little things. Um, How we say what we say. Is it really necessary to, I've got to be careful what I say here. I wanted to talk about marriage for a minute. As a pastor, you, you talk to people a lot about their marriage. I'm, I'm going to just tell you guys this. Whoever it is you're dating and thinking about marrying, understand this. After you marry them, they are not going to metamorphosize into the person you want them to become. Whatever they are now, look at the negatives and understand those negatives are going to be amplified because you're seeing the best version of them now. That's right. Man, before people get married, we can't keep them out of the sack. After they get married, we can't get them to go to bed together. It's amazing. Now look, every hill is not worth dying on. People argue about the dumbest things. I know a couple that got divorced over a chewing gum. Chewing gum on the dinner plate. That ended up in a divorce. But more so, it's just fussing. Fussing and nitpicking and arguing over little stuff that really doesn't make any difference. How hard is it just to be nice? To be kind. Kindness. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness. God wants us to be faithful people, faithful in our friendships, faithful in our coming to church, faithful in our giving, faithful in our service, faithful in the call of God, faithful to our own personal growth and development in Christ. Listen, if if you think that God wants us to simply come to church twice a week and in, in a couple of hours of teaching out of all the the, the, the hours, 24 hours a day times seven days a week. You think, you think that God, God's going to want you to just have a couple of hours of church in there 
to countermand all that other time in the world and Satan's ma- messing with you and, and life is coming at you, we need to take responsibility for our own spiritual maturity and feed ourselves in the Word, feed ourselves in prayer, worship, and grow in God. Listen, spiritual maturity does not happen like you stepped in a manhole by accident. Spiritual maturity happens on purpose and only on purpose. Spiritual maturity happens because we intentionally pursue it. You want to bear the fruit? You want, you want the Holy Spirit operative in your life? This is how he does it. Pursue God. Pursue the Word. Pursue worship. Pursue prayer. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness. Do we have a gentle way about us? You know, so my daddy used to, used to say, that person over there is a sandpaper Christian. And I, he would follow it up by saying, they always rode people the wrong way. We ought to have a gentle spirit. I know some of us are just loud, boisterous folks. That's okay. You can be loud and boisterous and, and full of confidence. Having a gentle spirit doesn't mean you walk around like this, like Kwai Chang Kane on Kung Fu years ago back in the 70s. Yes. It's amazing how the older he got, the more his Chinese accent came. Twelve years old, he talked like a Kansas farm boy. By the time he got 35, he could barely speak English. Let, let people beat on him and whack on him, you know. And finally, after he had enough, he'd do some and then teach him some manners. I'm not saying to let anybody whack on you and beat on you, but I'm saying our spirits and our attitudes need to be gentle. We need to have an easy edge around us. We need to have soft edges. If somebody says something we don't agree with, you know, or, or we think that's the most idiotic thing I've ever heard in my life, um, we don't need to just say that right then. The Bible says a soft answer does what? Turns away wrath. We need to let, and listen, listen to me. I know that we can point our finger at Christians who have been in the way for 50 years. You know, that's what they used to call Christianity before they called it Christianity. It was simply called the way. So you can either be in the way 50 years, or you can just be in the way. But these people have been in church 50 years. They ought to know better. They ought not to do that kind of stuff. Listen, this is important. Do not let the devil leverage you around because you're focused on what is horizontal. People are always going to be human. Focus on the vertical and let the Holy Spirit lead you. We are not drawn and led by anger and frustration and hurt and arguments and all that. We're not led by that. We respond to it in, in emotion, but that's not what leads us. What leads us is the Spirit of God. He draws us gently. Be soft around the edges. Be malleable. Have a willing spirit. We don't have to be edgy and confrontational. Everything doesn't have to be an argument. And I, I mean, I tell you, we've, we've had people almost, almost come to blows in the kingdom of God, not here. But I've heard stories of board meetings, you know, and people, people come to fist fights in, in a board meeting. Now, that's never happened under my authority. Nothing close. We have, we have a very, very good, peaceful board meetings here. I've heard of people getting in fight in the church parking lot after, after the Super Bowl. I mean, you know, come on, what's wrong with us? We've got we to gotta love one another. So we bear the fruit. And the last one's self-control. Now, I believe the last one is listed last because it may be the most difficult one to attain. But I can tell you this, and this is important. It's called self-control because God is not going to do it for you. It is our own job to grow in self-control with the Holy Spirit's help. 
But because it's a fruit of the Spirit doesn't mean God is going to mandate control over us. He never does that. God is never going to puppeteer you. He's not going to run his hand up the back of your shirt and puppeteer you. It's never going to happen. Even when somebody's given a message in tongues or a prophecy, you're completely within control of your faculties during that time. The spirit of the prophet is subject to the control of the prophet. These videos where people are just uncontrollably spazzing out and screaming and thriving and thrashing on the floor and laughing like hyenas for 10 minutes at a stretch. All that is stuff that they can control. And we, we're, we are responsible and we're, we're able to control. We are able to control how we respond to the presence of God. I want to say that again. We are in control of how we respond to the presence of God. God never just takes control and makes you do stuff you wouldn't ordinarily do. So it's important that as we grow in God, we understand that we can respond to the Holy Spirit in ways that are beneficial and appropriate. We don't draw attention to ourselves. We don't distract. We, we used to have a guy. Uh, well, we used to have a woman in our church, and, and she'd dance around the altar, and she'd do this little shriek thing. She'd go, whoo, just about that loud, man. And I mean, my ears just, you know. And she, she, she did it for a long time. And it was just so distracting. And I mean, nobody else in the church, everybody else involved in this sweet worship, you know. And she's dancing and whoa, you know, like Ric Flair or something. I had, had, had a, one guy who brought a tambourine. The worst mistake I ever made was not to snatch that thing out of his hands the first time. You don't play tambourines to I stand, I stand, and all of you, everybody's worshiping. Now put the thing down. You, that's why we don't... Uh. Self-control. We can control ourselves. Flip Wilson, back in the 1970s, started an entire thought process with his little saying, the devil made me do it. A lot of you older people remember that. The devil made me do it. The devil ain't never made you do anything. He suggested it. We decided to go along with the suggestion. The next thing that he does, and I've got to run through this quickly, is he operates through the gifts. I read to you the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. They are broken down into three groups of three gifts. There are the spoken gifts, there are the revelatory gifts, or the gifts of revelation, the revelatory gifts, and there are the power gifts. So if you break them down that way, the spoken gifts are tongues, prophecy, and interpretation. The Revelatory gifts, or the gifts of revelation, are discernment, word of wisdom, word of knowledge. And the power gifts are faith, healing, and miracles. Now, those are 12, I'm sorry, those are nine gifts, 1 Corinthians 12. Nine gifts. And I would love for all Christians to operate in all the dynamics of all nine gifts. Most of the time... We don't, but I will tell you this. The Holy Spirit can choose to manifest those gifts in any one of our lives at any time because he is, he is resident in us in his fullness. You understand? The Holy Spirit is there as himself. You don't get a slice of the Holy Spirit or a piece of the Holy Spirit. You don't get the word of wisdom part of the Holy Spirit and not the tongues part. All of the gifts are in resident, what I call resident potential in your life. So he can choose to manifest himself at any time in your life. If you're full of the Holy Spirit and if you're willing to let him do it, he can choose to manifest those gifts in and through your life at any moment. So I, and, the, and, the, and Paul plainly tells us in 1 Corinthians, eagerly desire, seek after, hunger for the best gifts. 
So I encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. If you've never experienced baptism in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues, I'll do a teaching on that. That is the evidence that we've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, If you've never been filled with the Holy Spirit, you should start seeking him now if you're a Christian and never stop until he does fill you. You should always seek after the infilling of the Holy Spirit and never stop. But these nine gifts, tongues, message in tongues, message in another language. I've told you several times that young, young lady in my youth group in Columbus, Georgia, the same group I was talking about earlier, who is now, believe it or not, a youth pastor in Statesville, North Carolina, where my, where my daughter knows her and used to go to church there with her. And she was her youth pastor for a while. She's the vice principal of Liam School now, so this is not some made-up person. I never make stuff up in the pulpit. I never lie other places either. So just clarify that. <laughs> but she went to Guatemala, or no, it was Argentina. I always say Guatemala. It was Argentina on a missions trip. And she went to this man's door, and she was talking to him about Jesus, and he spat on the ground and went and slammed the door in her face, wouldn't listen to her. So she just started praying in the Spirit in, in another language. She didn't know anything in Spanish except maybe burrito. <laughs> Only word she knew. And she prayed in the spirit a few minutes and, and people gathered around she could sense people around her she opened her eyes and the man was kneeling down in front of her she had been while she was praying in the spirit she'd been speaking his native dialect in spanish and talking to him about jesus and when he saw that and he knew she didn't know spanish he came out and that was a sign to him he gave his life to jesus christ I also told you about the international conference where one person gave a message in tongues and another man stood up and interpreted and another person gave a message and somebody else interpreted and after after some time, two people came forward and told the, the speaker that one was a Hebrew scholar, and he said that the message in tongues was given in perfect Hebrew, and the, the interpretation was word for word exact. And the other one was in some other bizarre, rare language hardly ever spoken in the world. And there happened to be somebody, some dialect of Swahili or something, but uh, he knew it, and the other person had spoken in that language, and the interpretation was exact. So these things are not just spooky, creepy, Pentecostal, you know, chandelier swinging, rock and roller type glory hound people. It's real, legitimate. It was the operative dynamic of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament church. Don't let anything spook you about the power of the Holy Spirit. He is real. Listen, we, the, the, the triune Godhead is comprised of one God in three persons, and they are, say them with me, Father, Son, and He is just as much God as God the Father. He is just as much God as God the Son. In fact, if God the Father is on His throne right now, and Jesus is seated at His right hand making intercession for us, who does that leave operating in the earth? The Holy Spirit, who always testifies to Christ, who is always obedient to the Father. These are not three separate beings. They're the same one God in three forms, three personalities. The last thing he does, and I'll close with this, and there's so much more, but how the Holy Spirit operates in everyday life is, the last one is, he comforts us. All of us have tough times. All of us go through times that are not so easy, not so pleasant. I always say, life is not always a kind old gentleman, and that is true. But when we go through hard times, let me encourage you, don't run to a bottle or a pill first, to maintain your sanity. Understand that the Holy Spirit is our comforter. The Bible says He comforts us with the comfort 
that only he can give us. Not as the world gives, but as God gives. That peace that comes by way of that comfort. When I believe, I believe that primarily stress is a decision. I think most of the time stress is a choice because stress is a choice in how we respond to the stimuli of life. So I believe most stress, most stress is a decision. But I also believe that beyond that threshold, there are legitimate stressors in life. You lose a loved one that's very close to you. That's legitimate stress. You lose your job and you don't know how you're going to pay the bills if you're going to have a house. That's legitimate stress. The IRS decides to audit you. That is legitimate stress. But everything that happens to us is not. In fact, few things are. We choose to respond with stress. We can also choose to respond by trusting God. I think a lot of times we've grown up in church hearing people tell Bible stories, and we've never really understood how to apply these incredibly powerful principles to our lives today. That's what this is about, how the Holy Spirit operates in everyday life. This stuff is not meant to just be experienced in church. Then we go home and go back to the real world. The real world is supposed to have the Holy Ghost operative in it every minute, all the time. Because he's in you. He's either in you or he's not in you. And if he's in you, you carry him with you to the job site, with you to the woods, with you to the marketplace, with you to the neighborhood, with you wherever you go. And so he should dynamically operate in and through us in all the circumstances of our lives. This thing is not to be experienced at church and nowhere else. The Holy Spirit's dynamic person, his personality, his attributes, his character traits, they should be bubbling and oozing out of our pores and our mouth and our attitude and our character should all be glorifying and testifying to Christ all the time. And those times when we, when we run into a difficult situation, our hearts get broken. We, we just run through a valley. I, I hate to wax poetic and all churchy, but we, we just sometimes go through valleys. Tough ones, hard ones. When we do, let the Holy Spirit comfort you. I think most worry is just struggling with problems before they even come to pass. Worry and anxiety always have to do with an unknown future. Stop focusing on an unknown future and start focusing on a known God. Stop worrying about what you can't control and focus on what God can help you control and walk through. He comforts us when we've gone through massive loss and trauma, but he also comforts us in the little things. Let's say somebody does something that hurts our feelings, and it, 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 takes, us, uh, it takes us by surprise. We're not prepared for it. We're disappointed, we're frustrated, we're shocked. Let the Holy Spirit come in that moment, in that very moment, and comfort your heart and settle you down and give you peace. Because your call, your walk, your relationship with God is not ever tethered to another human being. It is your personal walk and your personal relationship with Christ. You cannot allow life, circumstances, people, or your own fears to steer and leverage you around. You have to be led by the Spirit, not driven by emotion. Let the Holy Spirit comfort you. When, when things that happened to you a long time ago, wounds that are old just won't seem to heal. The key to getting over that is forgiveness. You really want to get past old wounds, learn how to forgive. That's the secret.
I could say a lot more, but I'm going to stop there. And I'm going to open the floor for a, just a couple of minutes of questions and comments and observations. And we'll say a prayer and we'll go home. So I'm going to recap these. How the Holy Spirit operates. How the Holy Spirit operates in everyday life. Number one, He empowers us. Number two, He always testifies to Christ in us and through us. Number three, He reminds us of the Word and illuminates it. Number four, He leads and guides us. Number five, He bears the fruit. Number six, He operates through the gifts. And number seven, He comforts us where we are. I could spend the whole night just talking about how He operates in the gifts in everyday life, but I didn't have time to even start. So we may do that next Wednesday. I may talk about how the Holy Spirit operates through the gifts in everyday life. And that's a powerful study. Anybody got th something you want to share, a thought, a question?